Father, we uh, come before you again, lifting up a prayer for insight, for wisdom, for patience and understanding, all of those things that would lead us in your way and in your purposes. Help us, Lord, as we learn things about you, that we'd simply not discard them because we don't like them. But help us, Lord, to be diligent in reducing the flesh to nothing and walking in the Spirit. We'll rely on you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time we talked about sin of a small portion of people that affected the entire group of the Israelites, the nation. We gave examples of 3,000 people who became idolaters And when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, the entire nation was harmed by their action. Then I talked about a few individuals who were harmed by their sin, and not only themselves, but everybody. The nation of Israel was affected by Achan after they had crossed over the Jordan River. And the reciprocal of that is also true. A person can be used for great good. Moses led the people in the wilderness for 40 years. He delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and led them, although he didn't go himself, led them into the promised land, which was later to be done by uh, Joshua. And then I give you an example of William Wilberforce who managed to abolish slavery almost single-handedly in England. In the application of this, in doing both good and evil, we never know how many people we will affect, so be careful and give diligence to what we do and to what we say. Now here we're going into the Lord of Grace. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it reads there, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So this is when God appears to Moses and he makes this declaration about himself. And I went over the tetragrammaton. The Lord is the word that is used here. It's the word of God or it's the word for God that doesn't have the vowel points and so you can't really pronounce it. But these words that are used here to describe God, we get the character of God, who he is and what makes him God. We do this with people all the time. If you introduce somebody to someone else or you talk about somebody to someone else, normally you give characteristics of that individual. You will say something like, hopefully, oh, they're wonderful. They're such a nice person. I was recently uh, talked to about somebody uh, that I'm familiar with and his girlfriend and him are going to the Arizona uh, College of the Canyons or University of the Canyons. It's a Christian college over there. And we know somebody mutually in this. And the person said, you know, about his girlfriend, she is just so sweet. I can't believe how sweet she is. And she couldn't get off that word on describing this girl. She's sweet. She's cute. She's nice. She's agreeable. And so all of those things described the individual. We want to make sure that if people describe us, that it's not a bunch of derogatory terms that are used to describe us. For instance, 
Oh, you know, they're kind of harsh in their talk. Oh, you know, they don't have very clean language. Oh, you know, they're a brawler or they're angry all the time. Hopefully it's, wow, you know, they're really sold out to God. Wow, they're really sacrificial. They really love, they put their faith into practice. Hopefully people talk about us in those types of terms. And that's what we want to strive for. But here... God describes himself, and he's the only one that can describe himself to us. Now, we can repeat that, but we can't give new information. It is only God that gives this information, and we can't always do it by observation because we don't see God face to face. We go based on knowledge and faith, and that's how we describe God. So he is merciful and gracious, and merciful here is better translated as full of compassion. And the word translated gracious comes from the idea of to bend or to stoop in kindness to someone who is inferior. And so, in other words, you have the power to be stronger or to be dominant over somebody else's life, and yet you bend down or you stoop low and you are kind to them. That's what this word gracious means. And grace... There is no greater word in the language than the word that stands for the undeserved free gift of the love of God. This is the strongest word that can be used in the Hebrew language. And this idea of not merely being adequate or liberal, but it is abounding. When you just don't have enough to contain it. When you get a um, sack of potato chips, is it overflowing? It's 50% air, right? And the manufacturer will say, well, it's settling. You know, it settles by the time it gets to you. You never open up a package like that and go, whoa, look at all these chips. They're just going everywhere. But you go to the movie theater and they give you a bucket of popcorn and it's overflowing. But you pay dearly for that, don't you? you? They put it right on top like, oh, we're blessing you so much. Yeah, but I just paid my first male child for that bucket of popcorn and and you think it's supposed to be good so it's not like that god's grace comes to us and it's just over it's like it doesn't stop it just keeps on coming it's kind of like a mentos in a coke bottle right you cannot contain it it just keeps on bubbling over that's god's grace and so this is the idea of abounding it goes on to talk about maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin and i think last week i mentioned that there are three categories that are listed here the wickedness rebellion and sin now what about wickedness in your mind you might have an idea of somebody who is desperately wicked now whoever that might be let's just take those people who are responsible for genocide in the world that we know about. For instance, Pol Pot, who was over in Cambodia, he's responsible for killing 1.5 million people. Just that man alone is responsible for that many deaths. Then there is Hitler. Hitler is responsible for about 11 million people dying. And then there's Stalin. Stalin was responsible for 34 to 49 million people dying under his leadership, being killed, being executed, being thrown into gulags, things like that. Then there's Genghis Khan. 
Genghis Khan was responsible for 40 million people. And the thing that's so astonishing about this is that was 10% of the world's population at the time he did it. Just wanton murder is what these individuals were involved in. And then Mao, Mao Zedong, remember him? He goes a little bit back for those of us who can remember. 49 to 78 million people he killed. Now these people, I think even God would classify as wicked. These are the worst of the worst. Same with the individual who would kidnap innocent little children and sell them into the sex slave trade. These people are wicked. There is no other way to describe them. Those people who take advantage, who harm other individuals just because they can. And so God says, I'll forgive the wicked. Now, you and I, we have standards, right? We would say, kill them. Don't even think about forgiving them. Just kill them. What kind of state is our country in is if, or when a killer on death row who has been so heinous in his acts of cruelty that when he goes to the death chamber or the, what they do now, the um, intravenous cocktail they give to them, when people are outside and they are cheering and they are celebrating when that person dies. That has happened in the last 10 years or so. I've seen that a couple of times when somebody has been capitalized. The people get out there and throw a party. And we should be mourning because this person was also created in the image of God and they are probably destined for eternity to punishment unless they accept Jesus Christ. One person that I would consider wicked would be Ted Bundy. If you remember him, he would kill and eat his victims. And James Dobson interviewed him, and he had, in fact, accepted Christ. And he knew what he did was wrong, but he felt he could not change it. And it was good that he was in prison, and he had repented. And so God would even forgive somebody if it's a genuine plea to God for forgiveness and repentance. God forgives that individual as well. And then there are those who are just in rebellion, What about this rebellion? Well, let me digress here for a minute. You know, when it comes to Mao Zedong, maybe uh, getting rid of 78 million people, there's a time coming upon our earth. And ladies, what chapter are you in of the book of Mark? 12? What's the next one? It follows, right? 12 to 13. Do you know what chapter 13 talks about? The end times just like Luke 21 and Matthew chapter 24. I think it's Mark 13. And when you get there, it talks about the tribulation period of what's going to take place inside the tribulation period and how bad it's going to be. And if you start doing research into that, you go into the book of Revelation about how many people end up dying, one half to two-thirds of the world's population is going to die. They're going to be judged. Now, how many people is that? If we have almost 7.5 billion people, that is over three and a half billion, 3.75 billion people will die. That's a judgment that is coming. 
Now, some might say, well, I don't believe in the end times. It doesn't matter if we believe it or not. It's if God is true in what he says about the tribulation period. Is it coming? Is it not coming based on the Bible? Is the word of God trustworthy? And if it is, he told us it is coming. This is what is going to be the fate of those who dwell on the earth. Three and a half to 3.75 billion people are going to die through plagues, disasters that he brings to the earth. You, do you see how nervous people get, especially those in the um, NASA community? There's a meteor that is going to just whisk by the earth, and it's going to be a close call. It's as close as the moon. We could end up being taken out. Well, eventually, there's going to be one, according to the scriptures, that hits the earth. And when it does, it's going to do almost total devastation. And so these things are coming. People are going to die. All these people that have been killed under Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, Genghis Khan, Mao Zedong, it's not even going to come close to what is going to take place when Satan pours out his wrath and God does the same thing here on earth. And so we need to be diligent in understanding what God's will for us is in this life. If, if we don't experience that, and I don't think we will as a church, we'll be raptured, but if the generation that is here today experiences that, we want to make sure we're communicating the message of grace and kindness and compassion and mercy that we just saw. But going on with this, what about the individual who is not wicked? They're just in rebellion. You know, this person who is in rebellion, they just say, no, I'm not going to do it. And they know God's righteous decrees. And they say, forget that. I don't believe it. I'm just going to do what I want. Now, do we have people in our society like that today? like 50%, right? 50% say, I don't care what your law is. I'm just going to do what I want. We have the anarchists and all that that are still out there in the protests. I don't care what your laws are. And they make their signs. They all look exactly the same for some reason. But they make their signs and they're just protesting and they're saying, I'm not going to fall in line. And then there are those who are sinners. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sin is something like do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. You take God's name in vain, guess what you are? Guess what I am if I do it? We're all sinners, right? So we have these degrees, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And you might categorize yourself, well, I'm not wicked. Do you think that makes you righteous? Do you think that makes me righteous if I'm not wicked? No, it doesn't. All forms of sin are condemnable by God. He says if you sin once, that's it because he requires perfection. But if you go back up, and, you know, we're going to get to that portion where he judges sin even to the third and fourth generation, but you have to remember God's loving, gracious, and giving character, it does not cancel out his righteousness. Now let me say that again. God's loving, gracious, and giving character does not cancel out his righteousness. And so we're going to learn about the characteristics or the character of God. Now, what I'm going to do in this particular passage, if you look at this, it's almost like, you know those, that snake in a can? You guys know what that is? That if you open it up, that snake just, he's like five feet long, and it's just this little bitty can that's a couple inches tall. So you can get to a verse like this, or verses 6 and 7, you can open it up, and all of a sudden it just, you might have 20 snakes come out of there, figuratively speaking. You have 20 different issues that you can deal with, that you can examine, that you can say, wow, there's, there's a lot more to these couple of verses here than I just saw. God's merciful. Yeah, I get it. Let's move on. 
It's much more than that. There's much more involved in this passage. God is both just and he is merciful. Once the righteous requirement is fulfilled, the judgment of sin, God can and will extend his grace and mercy to all who request it. Now, Scripture talks about this. In Psalm chapter 86, verse 15, it repeats the, it repeats the exact same revelation of God. It says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Well, how compassionate, how gracious, how long-suffering, how abundant in mercy and truth is he? Do you have any one of those to the maximum extent? Do I Have any one of these to the maximum extent? No, we are not. God will in no way clear the guilty, but he will extend all of these characteristics to the individual that asks. For instance, forgiveness and punishment. Now, forgiveness and punishment is wrapped up in chapter 34 and verse 7 that I've just read to you. Now, what about this? You start asking questions of the text. Now, this is how you conduct a Bible study on your own. You look at the text and you see how compassionate and gracious and kind and full of mercy, abounding in love that God is. Then you see he will not let the sinner go unpunished. How do you reconcile those two? You have forgiveness and you have punishment. Why does God even punish? You have to ask yourself the question, why does God forgive? Well, it's part of his nature to forgive. Why does God punish sin? Because justice is part of his nature. Why does God extend mercy instead of punish? Why doesn't he just say, I'm going to have mercy on this individual? He does if it is asked for. But he will not if it is not requested. Why doesn't God just extend his grace or his unmerited favor to us knowing that we are not perfect? Well, he does. There's no qualification in this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 through 48 says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are you not even or excuse me are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your brothers what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect what's it saying here he loves those who don't love him. Now, I know divorce is rampant in our country and probably around the world. I don't have the statistics for that, but I know in our country, it's not good. When divorce takes place, how many of those divorces are amenable, are agreeable? Like, yeah, we're just going to do this and we're going to get along afterwards, right? Like Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. You guys keeping up on that kind of stuff? Oh, they're just wonderful with each other, but they're divorced. You know, they they have separated. How many divorces in like that? Do you love the person like God loves them, even though you don't love them anymore? Do you treat them well? Do you bless them? You know, the reason we don't as a society is because we're narcissistic. We look at ourselves and what we're not getting. Now, granted, There are some times when a divorce takes place, it needs to take place. There's an abusive husband, an abusive wife, there's drugs. I mean, there's there's problems. I get that. But as a general rule, we are narcissistic. We love ourselves. 
We don't want to give up territory. We don't want to be kind to somebody else who is not kind to us. Look at the example of Jesus Christ. Was he kind to us? He was. He died for us. He gave everything for us. And most of the world is not going to receive his offer of salvation. You know, God loves those who do not love him. God's love has no limits. God's forgiveness has no limits. God's justice has no limits. God's mercy has no limits. God's grace has no limits. Now, when I was in school, we, um, in seminary, we talked about explaining God through a proposition, like God is love. God is forgiveness. God is just. God is mercy. God is grace. God is light. God is consuming fire. God is spirit. We, if you look at the Bible, we do not have a definition of God. We couldn't have a definition of God. Why? God, it's way too big. So he wants to give us a picture of who he is. Now, you might say a picture is worth a thousand words, but it doesn't describe the reality. And that's what God gives to us. And so when we say God is love, people have a tendency to fragment God and they take the fragments they want and they get rid of the fragments they don't. For instance, God is all love. I love that fragment. I look at God and he is a fragment of love. That's all he is. But he is also a fragment of justice. Now I'm using a fragment to describe how we perceive God. I want you to stick with me on this. We have all these facets, like in a diamond, right? How many diamonds are going to be sold for Valentine's Day? Thousands, probably. And you look at a diamond, and if you look at it closely, you see all these colors come out, right? And they're different facets. You can see blue and green and yellow, and it just, wow, all of these different colors in there. But what's the color of the diamond when you hold it out? It's clear. How is that possible? You know, the rainbow. When you look at the rainbow, when I was in college, I remember taking a chemistry class. And in that chemistry class, the the instructor, he took us into a room. And he goes, look at this machine. And we all looked at the machine. He said, this is a spectrometer. And we go, who? He goes, this is a spectrometer. And he said, if we run light through a particular gas it will project on this other side particular colors in the color spectrum. Like if you have argon, I believe argon is green. If you run electricity through argon, it gives you neon green. All these other gases, which are called the inert gases, if you put electricity in them, it betrays their color. That's why you have these neon lights that are out there. There's a particular gas for each color. Each gas can be identified by the spectrometer, right? If you look at a rainbow, in the rainbow, what is taking place there? The water that drops down takes the white light, diffuses it, and gives us the colors of the rainbow. So if you look at the white light, what color is the white light? It's all the colors. It's not just white. Let me give you another example. What do you think of these drapes? Well, it's better than black, right? What about the color? What do you think about that color? Up there, up behind there are these light bars, LEDs. And you have three colors. You have red, green, and blue. 
you can mix those colors in such a way to produce white light. I can go up there right now, if I had a ladder, I'd go up there and I'd push this little button and it would turn on all the LEDs and it could turn it completely white. But what colors are being used? Red, green, and blue. And you might say, well, how's that possible that it turns into white? Now, get the connection here. You look at God and he is grace, mercy, kindness, justice, he is spirit, he is a consuming fire. All of these are like different colors, put them all together, and who is God? God is light. In him there is no shadow of turning. But if you only look at one color, do you get the full picture of God? No, you don't. You have to look at the white light which consumes all of the colors, right? And when we look at the colors... And we say, wow, how does that relate? to That's God's promise to us. And if you wanted to make like a little sandwich out of God, so to speak, and it, the rainbow, you have grace, you have mercy, you have justice, you have kindness, all of those things. It was Sir Isaac Newton. In 1672, he divided the spectrum into five, the color spectrum, into five, five main colors of the light spectrum. Red, Yellow, green, blue, and violet. So God is love, God is forgiveness, God is justice, God is mercy, God is grace. Now that's how we can understand it. But I want to tell you something. That color spectrum, do you know women have the ability, some women have the ability to see thousands of more colors than any man? Did you know that? That's why when you go to a paint store, yeah, you guys are laughing. You go to a paint store and the woman goes, no, this is a little more like puce. It isn't quite what you think it is. It looked, no, it won't match. And so the woman just goes crazy with the colors, crazy in a good sense, crazy with the colors that she wants to paint something with. And the guy's going, what? I'm colorblind. I can't tell anything. You know, He can only see so many colors which are up there. If you go to the color spectrum, how many colors are in the color spectrum? millions there is not just five there are millions and if you look at that color spectrum you know you it goes from red yellow green blue violet and then you get into the ultraviolet colors and if you go back the other way you have the infrared colors how far do those spectrums go forever if you go to the ultraviolet you get up into the x-ray and the gamma ray and those are also waves just like light waves if you go to the infrared side those are also waves you get into the radio waves i am broadcasting right now on a quote-unquote color wave now imagine if you could see it you would see this going back in a wave you know going back to the the um, soundboard back there and this is an attempt to bring some understanding of how big god is he is so big, and you say, this is all in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7? Yes, it's all there. All you have to do is start digging. It's like the snakes coming out of the can. You're going, there's so much more here. God is gracious and compassionate, but there's so much more to him. How much more? It's infinite. You know, when we get to heaven and God reveals a little bit more of himself, we, we are just, our heads would explode. You know, if he gave us too much, we, we just wouldn't be able to survive. And so this 
declaratory statement that God is making here encompasses everything that we need for this life, and he will give us more when we get there. God God is just not these particular things, his graciousness and his mercy. What is between grace and mercy? An infinite number of characteristics that God has. And God is so much bigger than we can think or that we can imagine, but God decided to bring it down to our level so that we would understand. So God is like a rainbow. He's like a light bar. He's like the color spectrum, all of those things. Now, since God is like this, and he wants to show us this compassion and this mercy and this kindness, what is our problem? Why don't we just accept it? Why don't we say, God, you've given me so much freedom and forgiveness. I just want to do everything for you. I'm really comprehending what it means to be a follower of you. And why don't we? We don't do this because we are rebellious. It is our nature not to fall in line. We are either wicked, we are rebellious, or we are sinful. Ultimately, we will act wickedly in an endeavor to maintain our sins if there is no repentance. This is the danger we suffer. As we get older, we have more sins. We can either become humble in that pattern of sin and ask God for forgiveness, or we can say, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. You notice children are innocent, right? Now, they'll go astray, and a little correction brings them back in line. But adults can be incorrigible. They get correction, and what do they do? They don't listen. They go out and do it again. What's the recidivism rate for prison? I mean, it's 70 80%. People just get back in there because they refuse to buckle under what the society has determined is right and just and fair. So our tendency is to do wickedly and we will go from bad to worse unless we repent. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Timothy was being instructed about false teachers and the men of the age. He said, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We run this risk as well. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what stage of rebellion or sin or wickedness do we find ourselves? And are we sliding backwards or are we going forward? Now, how do you examine this? For instance, how do you know if somebody is getting better at baseball? They're able to hit better more often, more home runs, catch better. Make better outs if they're a second baseman or a shortstop. They are top of their game, right? They just know how to do everything. And the pitcher, if you can throw, I I heard there was somebody the other day that can throw a pitch 105 miles an hour. 105 miles an hour. I wouldn't want to be hit by that thing. Imagine if you got hit by that thing, it would knock you out. But that is somebody who is good. You can tell that they have improved. Well, what about the Christian? How do you know if the Christian is getting better? It's like they walk on their own. They need no assistance. They're in charge of feeding themselves. They actually go out and do things. What do you know if somebody is a mature adult? They have a job. They provide for themselves. They don't complain a lot. 
they just put their nose to the grindstone. If you have a mom that just says, I hate this job, you take care of that kid. You think she's being a good mom? You think she's maturing in her motherhood? No. What if you have a father that says, I'm not going to work. You go work. You take care of the house. You think he's being a good dad, father? No, he's not. We have this rung which we must climb up as a believer, and it's on us. You can't turn to God and say, God, make me a more mature believer. God goes, no, it's your turn. You do it. You pick up the sword of the Spirit. You are the one that wields that sword effectively. Use it on yourself first and then use it on everybody else. He wants us to come to full maturity. If we're not actively pursuing that, what happens? We backslide. We just kind of slide back and we become comfortable. Now, bringing a message like this, we go, our flesh. Our flesh says, I don't want to hear this. I'm doing enough. Really? If we ever arrive at the point where we say we're doing enough, we're totally blowing it. We are flat on our backs. We could never do enough for Christ and what he has done for us. Now, I say this not to heap guilt. That's, that is not my purpose. How many people get motivated by guilt? Well, a few do. But wouldn't you rather be motivated by love? Take a young couple on Valentine's Day. Is the young man who is desperately in love with the young woman, and by the way, at a late teen, early 20 age, a young man can be so in love with a woman, it hurts. And I, I am not joking about that. It is verifiable. I've seen uh, young men write about this. I've read some things that they have put down. And it's just like, it just aches. You know, I just, I want to be with her. I want to hug her. Probably much more, but I want to hug her. You know, I want her to be part of my life. I, I just can't stand to be separated. And then he gets married. And then what happens? The same, you know, it should continue in the same mode, just becomes more mature. But it it can be at a point where it just, it aches for the young man. And the woman, the temptress comes along and she looks cutesy and fixes her hair. And he's just going, oh, you know, he, he just doesn't know how to handle it, that type of thing. Our love for God should be in the same mode where, wow, I just, I want to spend time with him. I want to be with him. I want him to show me what his will is and you have this relationship that is based on love and forgiveness and graciousness not a relationship that is based on judgment guilt and punishment that's what we strive for and so you know in this my encouragement to you is walk in such a way where you become mature where the motivation of your heart and my heart gives itself to love kindness graciousness and mercy all of these things now exodus chapter 34 going on it says in verse 5 then the lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the lord yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation i think that's in verse 7 i don't have it listed here like that it would appear on the face of it that these children will suffer the judgment of the generational sin when he says yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation it makes it seem like 
the sins that I commit, my children will be judged for. And I've talked to several people over the years about this, that they are concerned that because their parents sinned, they are falling into the same trap, and then their children fall into the same They see it repeating from generation to generation. Now, there is this reaping and sowing. For instance, if a father is an alcoholic, what percentage chance is there that a child of his will become an alcoholic? It's good. It's more than 50%. And what about that next child? And you can see how that can be generational, right? And so the sin and the result of that sin can be generational in that sense. But what he's talking about here is something that is national. It is not something that is an individual sin. This is repeated, or actually it's spoken about before this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in any form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, and there's a qualifier here, of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's talking about a generation of individuals, a country that is in a pattern or habit of sin, that that will go from generation to generation. Do we have sins in this country? Yes. We have big sins in this country. Are we giving ourselves over to those sins? Or are we retreating from them and repenting? You know, several cats have been let out of the bag, so to speak. Not only in the last eight years, but since 1973, Roe versus Wade. Is that something that God will judge us as a nation for? He will. Are we contributing to other nations and giving them money to carry out the same procedures? Yes. What about homosexuality? And I, you know, I know both of these are the topics that Christians hate to hear about the most. They, they, they don't want to stomach it. And yet if we remain silent as the church, are we guilty? Remember, it was uh, Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. If we do nothing, if we say nothing, if we think it's wrong, we are involved in helping it rather than standing up and saying, this is wrong. What about the taking away of freedoms? The same thing. We, we need to, as Christians, as individuals, stand up and call right, right, and wrong, wrong. God tells us to do that. He says, if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Yes, people will hate you because of it, Right? There's nothing we can do. We can't get around that. But if we say, but I don't like to be confrontational. You don't have to be disagreeable in just expressing your opinion. But those who disagree with your opinion as a believer will be disagreeable to you. That's just the way it works. God calls us to take courage. And he says, you know, even if they take their, your life, don't worry about it. What do you gain if they take your life? Heaven. Yeah, but I don't want to suffer. Do you know... We cannot have free will without suffering. But you want free will. The world wants free will. The world wants free will to sin without judgment or punishment. That's what the world wants. Would you give that to your child? Would you give that freedom to your child? You have the freedom to sin all you want to, and I'm not going to judge you or punish you. It's okay. What do you think your child would turn out to be? Pol Pot. You know, he would turn out to be some mass murderer is what he would be. He would be 
focused on himself. She would be focused on themselves. And so if you're given the free will, you're going to make mistakes. Why? Because there's evil. And sometimes you, me, we're going to choose evil. And God says, when you do, guess what? There's judgment and punishment. Now, for the believer, there's discipline. What's discipline? We know what discipline is. It's the rod of correction applied to the seed of understanding. And for us as adults, that's metaphorical. As a little child, that's going to be literal, right? That's what the scripture says. And so God comes along. He describes who he is to us. He says he's good, he's gracious, he's kind, but he's going to judge sin. And to bring just a little more clarity to this, how do we know that he's not talking about a person that sins because they sin, God's going to judge their child, and they are going to be guilty of the same sin and punished onto the second and third generation? How do we know that that's not the case? We want to turn to some scripture to give us clarity, right? Uh, an example of clarity in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does blessed are the poor in spirit mean? I've been in Bible studies where people say, well, that means humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Their spirit is lowly and they are poor. They are down. The other translation or interpretation of that would be, blessed are the poor who are believers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How do you know which one it is in Matthew chapter 5? Well, you turn to Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 20, it says, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. When I was in seminary, they'd tell us, if you come to a passage and it's really not clear for you, rewrite it. Have Bill's version, you know, or whoever was in the class. And so I rewrote this verse. Can't wait, can you? Blessed are believers who have no wealth in this world for all that God has will become yours. That's what the verse means. If you are poor in this life, and that brings clarity, right? If you go to another scripture, it brings clarity. For those who are poor, if you have nothing in this life, it's okay. God's going to give you his whole kingdom. Really? Yeah, he's going to let you sit on his throne. Me. Yeah. You get to go up there and sit on his throne. No. Yeah. He's going to do that for all of us. How gracious and kind and merciful is God. That's huge. I mean, that's... I can't even describe, I don't have the words to describe how big that is. So what about this generational thing? If a scripture comes up that says that's not what it means, you can throw out what you think it means, right? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19 and 20. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So that brings a lot of clarity to this idea of a generational sin. Just because you sin doesn't mean it's going to transfer to your child, and that child is going to suffer the same fate as you. The child is responsible for their own sin and also a grandchild or a great-grandchild. They are the ones that get to decide. It is free will is what it is called. And so God will judge us all individually. I will not be responsible for the sins of my father or mother, and neither will you. So if somebody wants to tell you, look, you could generational sin, it could go to your kids. Now there's reaping and sowing. I understand that. But this idea that our 
kids are going to suffer for our sin, that's just not the case in God's economy. He is not going to punish them for that. So what about application here? Well, we know that if we have increase in our we have increase in our understanding of God, his characteristics, like the light spectrum, God is multifaceted, he is not just simply God is love, God is grace, God is kind, all of those things. We know that we will be judged for our sins only and not for the sins of our parents. And we know that nationally practiced sin will bring God's punishment for generations to come. And that's what he's really referring to there. So what should our response be? Well, in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 34, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. O Lord, he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Let's change just a couple of words. Although we are a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is for all intents and purposes, the prayer of salvation. Moses is saying, take us to be yours. That's what we pray when we ask God to forgive us of our sin. Take us and be yours. Is our tendency to go astray? It is. Does God forgive us when we return to him and say, God, forgive me for that? He does. Does he give his grace to us without finding fault? He does. Does he give wisdom to us if we simply ask? James, according to the book of James, yes, he does. I'll close with this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your character your kindness, your goodness, your graciousness. But thank you, Lord, for also revealing to us that you are just and you can only be just for that is part of your character. And we ask, Lord, for this mercy to be extended to us and for not just our sakes, but for your sake and the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.